listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. The war had many effects. The wartime production brought the country out of the depression. The need for workers allowed labor leaders to take on new roles and unions to advance the issues of labor, civil rights, New Deal social programs. The CIO, by the end of the war, claimed six million in membership. Its membership enjoyed new rights to representation and collective bargaining. The post-war rage may have had a place for labor, but not in a leadership role, and it came with requirements that would split the movement. Fortunately, the plans faltered, even to the point of an AFL and CIO merger, but they could not get back to the momentum they once had. The 1940s brought great division to the country, including the labor movement over the preparations of war. John Lewis would not trust Roosevelt after he failed to stop government contracts going to companies that broke labor laws. He joined the communists to oppose any move to draw the U.S. into the war. Most union leaders opposed the peacetime draft which Congress passed by a single vote in September 1940. Of course, some approved, for example, Sidney Hillman of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers argued, no man can say he is for labor if he is not ready to defend democracy to the utmost. Hillman enjoyed Roosevelt's competence and served on his National Defense Advisory Council. At Ford, the United Auto Workers lined up endorsements from civil rights activists and swept a May 1941 election against an AFL-chartered United Auto Workers, led by the losing faction in the union's national election of 1939. The first Ford contract stunned everyone. It provided for a union shop, dues checkoff, seniority protection, grievance procedures, and the highest wages in the industry to gain a no-strike clause. The steel workers shut down Bethlehem Steel's Bacawana, New York plant in February and its homeworks in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in March. Then as in one NLRB election after another, Youngstown Sheet to Tube and Inland Steel signed 
union contracts without asking for elections. When strikes affected military procurement, company executives and War Department officials urged federal intervention. North American Aviation in Inglewood, California, the UAW defeated the AFL machinists for representation in January 1941 and demanded big wage increases. The company stalled and the local set up pickets on June 5th. United Auto Workers leaders wanted no part of it. Aviation Division Director Richard Frankenstein denounced the strike as communist inspired, suspended local officials, and ordered members back to work. Most refused. Strikers shouted him down at a mass meeting. Roosevelt sent the National Guard to enforce the back-to-work order. Federal mediators later gave substantial raises. The Communist Party had abandoned the United Front against fascism following the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact of August 23, 1939. But when Germany invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, the party almost overnight returned to support for the anti-fascist war. A. Philip Randolph of the AFL's Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Maids organized a movement to march on Washington to protest racial discrimination and segregation in war industries, government employment, and the armed forces. Over 100,000 people planned to rally in the Capitol on July 1, 1941, when Roosevelt agreed to ban racial discrimination by military contractors, Randolph called off the march. On December 7, 1941, Japanese airplanes attacked the Navy base at Pearl Harbor. The next day, Congress declared war on Japan. Germany and Italy declared war on the United States three days later. Over the next three and a half years, the war touched every part of American life and transformed the labor movement. The Second World War made the first seem small. The number of deaths was enormous, more than 50 million, more than 18 million in the Soviet Union alone. The nation mobilized as never before and at an immense cost. Corporate profits soared on cost plus government contracts and tax credits for building or improving plants for war production. Unemployment virtually disappeared. Labor shortages drew many new workers from rural areas, especially the South and Southwest. The president set the work week at 48 hours with hours over 40 paid as overtime. More people made more money than ever before. A lot of agencies coordinated the effort the War Production Board directed the conversion of civilian plants to military production. Auto workers made anti-aircraft guns at General Motors. The Board of Economic Warfare allocated short supplies of rubber and petroleum. The Office of Price Administration, OPA, set maximum prices for manufactured goods, controlled rents in housing short cities, and rationed scarce goods like sugar, coffee, and gasoline. Other agencies oversaw scientific research, transportation, housing construction, aid to allies, war information, 
and propaganda. The War Powers Commission, WPC, coordinated both military conscription and the war production workforce. By mid-1943, the WMC had frozen 27 million workers in critical war industries. Some opposition came from religious pacifists like the Catholic Worker Organization and the Fellowship of Recollection, and from a few socialists. Selective Services classified 43,000 draftees out of 10 million as conscientious objectors and reported that about 350,000 tried to evade the draft. Federal agencies working with civilian groups promoted patriotic sentiments in a giant propaganda campaign. The various media celebrated the war as a battle for democracy and portrayed wartime America as a beacon of tolerance, fairness, and equality. But just as the anti-fascist war was also a fight for empire, its impact on home front democracy was ambiguous too. Congress established the Bresario program in 1942 to bring in Mexican farm workers and revoked Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. Roosevelt promised citizenship and veterans benefits to Filipinos who volunteered to keep fighting the Japanese until the U.S. forces returned. Everyone could be enlisted or drafted. Though Japanese American volunteers were accepted only as an experiment, and island Puerto Ricans and African Americans served in segregated units or assignments, mostly construction and stevedoring. Of the more than one million people who went into the military, 700,000 were African Americans, 350,000 Mexican Americans, 48,000 Puerto Ricans, 30,000 Japanese, and 19,000 Native Americans. About 350,000 women joined the military, and the female labor force grew by more than 5 million, mostly in industrial and clerical work. The Fair Employment Practice Committee monitored job discrimination. In 1942, the EPC directed Alice Chalmers and nine other companies to cease racial and religious discrimination. In 1943, hearings the War Manpower Commission found 22 railroads and 14 rail unions discriminating against African and Mexican Americans. Some people reacted violently to the changes. When the government built the Sojourner Truth housing project for black workers in a white Detroit neighborhood in 1942, it had to send the National Guard to protect the residents from violent harassment. The next year, 25,000 white Detroit Packard workers walked out to protest black workers placed in white jobs. The strike ended four days later after President R.T. Thomas got the government to issue a back-to-work order and declared strikers would be fired without union objection. Two weeks later, the city exploded. 30 hours of racial violence left 34 dead, 25 black, most killed by police. That summer, racial disturbances were recorded at military bases around the country and overseas. Early in June 1943, rumors spread in Los Angeles that Zooters were beating up sailors. Gangs of servicemen went hunting Zooters, 
stripping and beating any they caught and killing several. In February 1942, Roosevelt ordered Japanese Americans interned. About 112,000 men, women, and children. Internment was impractical in Hawaii, but the authorities did declare martial law, detain 3,400 community leaders, and close Japanese newspapers, schools, and temples. The government suppressed the Nation of Islam's final call, and the leaders of a black Hebrew group in New Orleans was given a 15-year sentence for encouraging draft refusals. But no dissent was tolerated. 6,000 conscientious objectors went to prison, most of them Jehovah's Witnesses, and many served in solitary confinement on bread and water diets. Another 12,000 objectors were put in service camps to work jobs like firefighting without pay. Most union leaders immediately pledged not to strike for the duration. To resolve labor disputes, the president established the National War Labor Board with representatives from labor, business, and government. To protect unions from losing members, the NWLB approved maintenance of membership union shop agreements in which new hires had 15 days to join the union or be dismissed. From 1940 to 1945, total union membership had more than doubled to 15 million. When United Steelworkers of America began bargaining with Little Steel, they demanded more pay to cover rises in the cost of living. In January 1942, the board allowed a 15% raise over the level of January 1, 1941, and applied this formula to a wartime wage demands. Unions could get around it by negotiating better non-wage benefits. NWLB routinely approved settlements with improvements in paid holidays and vacations, travel and meal allowances, shift differentials, incentive pay, and bonuses. When Bendix hired a black man in the tool room at Sylvia Wood's plant, UAW steward said, he's coming here to work. Anybody that doesn't like it, Turn in your union cards and get the hell out. No one quit. The number of women in unions rose from 800,000 in 1940 to 3.5 million in 1944, almost a quarter of the total membership. Congressional conservatives were strong enough to override Roosevelt's veto of the War Labor Disputes Act in June 1943. The first labor legislation to become federal law since 1932. The CIO set up a political actions committee to marshal union support for the president, pro-labor candidates, and progressive legislation. CIO uh, PAC raised money and worked with progressive groups, but its main effort, chosen after a study of the 1942 elections in industrial districts, it lobbied legislators to let military personnel to register and vote by mail. It also made special appeals to women and African Americans could best build on their wartime gains by joining union members and backing a revitalized New Deal. CIO-backed candidates did well in the primaries. The no-strike pledge hunt 
Stella Nowicki worked at the Swift plant in Chicago, saw its effect on her United Packing House workers local. Grievances were hung up without being settled or turned down because the company knew we could not do anything. Meanwhile, production speeded up at the cost of safety. Through 1943, industrial accidents claimed more lives, 37,600, than combat did. Most unions had to suppress local job actions to keep the no-strike pledge. Union members still staged thousands of strikes, mostly over local grievances. Fisher body sandblasters struck to get 10 minutes paid time at the end of the shift to clean up. Ford River Rouge assembly line workers walked out over the company removing their stools and again to protest bad ventilation. Briggs Mack crane operators refused to work more than eight hours straight. John Lewis never took the pledge. He had a half a million miners strike four times in 1943. He controlled the union from top to bottom. The NWLB's approval of closed shops brought in thousands of new union members with no commitment to the union, but Chekhov docked their pay for union dues. With no strike threat, employers had no reason to negotiate, so union leaders depended on politicians to win concessions. Politicians wanted production without disruption, and inevitably, Union leaders sometimes blocked even the most legitimate demands of their members to keep their political friends happy. The end of the war brought new issues for labor. Military contracts were canceled, and post-war depression, war workers were laid off, including four million women in the first eight months after VJ Day. Congress had passed the GI Bill of Rights, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act in June 1944. It provided subsidized home and business loans, student stipends, and job training, unemployment benefits, life insurance, hospital care, disability pensions, burial allowances, and cash bonuses. CIO leaders wanted to mobilize for peace. AFL leaders wanted the government out of labor relations business looked to dismantle not only wartime controls and regulations but the entire New Deal. The political contest started early. In Detroit 1945 mayoral election the United Auto Workers Frankenstein led the nonpartisan primary vote. Backed by city newspapers and business leaders incumbent Edward Jeffries warned that if Frankenstein won, communists would move blacks into white residential areas, lowering property values. Frankenstein lost. The vote was not even close. In the first 12 months after the war, more than 4,600 strikes swept across the country. More than 5 million workers participated, mainly industrial unions. The CIO Workers' Industrial Union started striking on September 17, 1945 with the slogan 5240 or fight. 52 hours pay for 40 hours work, followed within days by 
200,000 coal miners striking for union recognition and 24,000 AFL lumber workers in the Northwest. East Coast ports shut down for 19 days while International Longshoremen's Association members struck against their president for life, Joseph Ryan's agreement with shippers. Wages were central to CIO plans. Raising wages would provide the consumer purchasing power to sustain prosperity. Wartime profits were more than twice the pre-war average, nearly the highest on record according to government economists, suggesting that employers could pay more without raising prices. The UAW targeted General Motors first. Walter Ruther demanded a 30% increase in hourly wages and challenged the company to open its books to prove it could not afford the raise. GM refused Ruther's offer of arbitration. On November 21, 1945, the UAW shut down 92 plants in 50 cities and on December 8 rejected Truman's order to return to work. In January, a presidential fact-finding panel calculated a 33% rise in the cost of hiring since 1942 and recommended that wages increase about half that amount, about 19.5 cents an hour. Ruther accepted the deal, but the company refused. Others soon demanded the same. United Electric Workers, AFL and CIO packing house unions and still workers. The Office of Price Administration began authorizing price increases and by mid-March the unions had settled national pattern agreements in all four industries. GM was the last to capitulate. Ruther became the new UAW president. 